Welcome to season four of the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, where we explore the local arts culture and community in the Lehigh Valley. We'll be doing this through conversations with individual artists, administrators, musicians, poets, actors, and arts and cultural organizations. We'll discuss all types of mediums with the goal of enriching local arts culture. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. I'm Ben, and today we have a very special episode in which Elise and Elizabeth interview Larry Mason. Larry Mason is a writer, musician, theater artist, and disability advocate. He works within the theater world to try to build shows that talk honestly about his history with disability and how to build a more accessible theater experience. Well, Larry, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you on Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. What kind of art do you make? What do you do, Larry? Um, I am primarily a theater artist. Um, I'm somebody who likes to learn. And so I've always wanted to be a writer. So I'm a playwright primarily. Um, And then I also do a bit of acting, sound design. I've done some lighting work. I've done directing. I've done stage managing. If if you can do it, I've tried to do it. But primarily I'm a playwright and an actor. Um, I also record a lot of music. I started playing violin when I was three. And so I've played music for 22, 24. Three years um, of nonstop. I learned how to read um, G Clef before I learned how to read English. So um, I always like to say music is my first language. So um, I play a handful of instruments. So I do that for myself, where like theater is my front facing art. I had no idea you played the violin. I don't anymore because uh. I hated the violin. Oh, shit. Okay. And so um, I, no, it's okay. I, like my mother and I would get into like hour long arguments about me practicing the violin. And so, and then I, in fourth grade, stopped playing the violin and picked up the guitar. And then in high school, I would get in trouble and she would say, stop practicing guitar. You need to do your homework. So it's, it's really like finding what works for you and what you attach to. Um, so because like violin was not for me I don't know how much of that was I was a five-year-old who wanted to run around outside and how much of that was like me not enjoying the instrument but I think that it has to be partially the instrument because as soon as I picked up guitar like I would play it for hours and hours and hours so it's just what you're compatible with Hmm. there's I don't know how much this even connects to what we're talking about, but I saw this. There's this woman on TikTok or Instagram that I follow that. <clears throat> so I played the violin for 20 years. Really? <laughs> oh. um, That's what she said. And, awkward. <laughs> so one of the um, things that this woman talks a lot about is she calls it like conservatory culture and how there's like this really it's similar in like visual art. And there's like this fine art culture and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. there obviously is a culture around yeah. like certain instruments and whatever so there definitely is. It's, it's like really fascinating whenever i talk to people that are like oh i gave up the violin i'm like i wonder why like i know why it's because there's like this there is like a weird specific culture around it that i don't think other instruments like like liz you play the guitar mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i don't i think i think our uh our experiences with like learning music has been very different to where like i think and even you said this, like you play it for yourself. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where I've ended up where like after all of these years, I'm like, I don't even want to like play at all anymore for other people. Like it's just for me now. But yeah, it's such a weird, like a weird way to grow up with like learning an instrument where there's like a lot of pressure versus maybe not yeah. a lot of pressure. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, because uh, I play, I have played 
I'll put it that way, seven different instruments throughout my life. Um, and like, I, I like equating music to language because I really view it as its own language where like I'm fluent in three or four and then like I'm conversational and like piano and um and other reed instruments where like I can read, I can play. It's not going to be <laughs> virtuosic, but it's, it's going to be very, it's going to be efficient for something simplistic. Um, but like I went to undergrad on a full ride for my bassoon playing because I played in orchestras forever and ever and ever. And I still love orchestral music. And part of the reason I was talking to Carter recently, who I put you in touch with, who um, works with the, oh goodness. Miller Symphony. Yes. The Miller Symphony. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, And like, and when I moved here, one of the first places I reached out to was actually the Miller Symphony because I said, nobody ever, everyone needs a bassoon no one ever has extra bassoons please please i play the bassoon <laughs> please use me i would love to and they never got back to me but uh but uh i i played i but i've played bassoon in theater shows i play it all the time by myself i have bassoon coasters at home but like part of it is like the the hyper competitive nature of violin where like everyone's battling because they the concert mistress is first chair violin um first chair first violin violin and like I don't particularly care about that um and so uh I played bassoon and the nice thing about bassoon is you either have those people who wants to be mistresses, or you have people who just picked up the instrument because no one else was playing it <laughs> and so there's like these two different personality types uh in double reeds um because the every time you pick up a double reed to play it, you have to work on the reed itself, the wiring on it and the cotton fiber as well. You have to work with um, because every single day it will react differently because the wood and how it's reacting to like biometric pressure. And so even if you make these reeds, um, they can last you for like six months to a year, depending on how often you play and, and how well you're doing upkeep too. And like you have, you have tools in your case to work on these reeds whenever you pull them out. You need to soak them for one to two minutes. You need to work on the wires after that, and then you can play. And even then, even in tip-top shape, there's going to be reeds that are like never will sound good. <laughs> and so they're like your practice reeds because you can wear them out and throw them away. And then you have your performance reeds where these ones sound beautiful and so you only play them in performances because you don't want to play them during rehearsals because it doesn't matter if your tone's perfect and so there's also that part of bassoon culture where like and oboes too but um i play bassoon so that's what i know um and uh, just like working with what you're what's put in front of you and this kind of um no matter what you do it's going to be what it's going to be and so making the best out of whatever you're handed that day and that's part of why i really like bassoon players is because usually they're like hey man like sure my car just broke down but i still got a slice of pizza so it's going to be fine (laughs) and so uh, i've met a lot of bassoonists especially higher end bassoonists that are that way where it's like i've been dealt a shitty shitty hand but you know i i still have a cup i have a pair in there maybe i'll win this (laughs) hand (laughs) that's too funny i i'm so glad you brought up the orchestra stuff because i've never had a chance to bring this up on the podcast but there is an amazing organization in the Lehigh Valley that I've 
been involved with off and on for probably five or 10 years, um, called the really terrible orchestra. And it, I am consistently the youngest person in this orchestra, (laughs) but my mom and I go together because she played the French horn for years and I love the French horn. (laughs) She's fabulous. But, um, it's, we rehearse at a nursing home in Bethlehem. So people that live in their nursing home will like come in and listen to the rehearsals. And then we play a Christmas show, a a fall show, a Christmas show and a summer show every year. And then I wasn't able to do it, but over the summer they had a show in the park that they did with like some festival in Nazareth. So if you are a recovering orchestra or band kid, this (laughs) is something you, they have a Facebook page. It's run by people that are much older than probably most of our listeners, which is awesome. So reach out multiple times, email multiple times to make sure they get your information. But (laughs) the director is incredible. Everyone that's in it is incredible. And it literally is all people that just like want to play together. No one cares if it sounds good or not. It's so much fun. It's so relaxing and they deserve like this, this organization deserves to be like shouted from the rooftops because it is like healed my (laughs) inner child (laughs) musician. (laughs) And my mom, my mom feels like very similarly, I think, because it's just so like, there needs to be more stuff like that where you can just go and like, not, there is no pressure. You can just enjoy it. There's no conservatory culture around it. So um, just a little shout out to the really terrible orchestra. <laughs> I need to look into that because that sounds absolutely fabulous. But to go back to this conservatory culture, part of the reason I like one of the places I got accepted into was uh, Vanderbilt in Tennessee. And um, they're very, very good. Um, and the reason why I ended up not choosing them and going to a state college instead is because like I was like, can I double major in uh, music composition and theater? And they said, you can major in music composition and you can play the bassoon for us. Yeah. But what about this? You can apply to the theater school, but you'd have to choose. And so like, I also don't like the very limiting aspects of like undergrad conservatories where they're like, you are this thing. And so when I was looking for grad schools, that was kind of, I got accepted into a couple of different grad school programs that were very, very good. Um, And I ended up, choosing touchstone instead uh, because they believe in doing a little bit of everything and how that makes you a better artist. And I, that's something, a value that I agree with wholeheartedly is that the more, you know, the better you can like prepare. Um, And also the more you can be like accommodating and think about problems ahead of time, because there's so many people that I know that are actors that are horrible to their costume techs because they've never had to step foot into a costume room. And so they don't know the etiquette of like, make sure that this is this way. And that's also how you get safety pins accidentally left in your costumes is being awful to your costume techs. Um, but also I've had pants rip on stage before and like during intermission, I'm like head down stitching it back together with, uh, by hand. Cause I'm like, oh, I don't want to have split pants <laughs> during act two. <laughs> and so, but like just having that flexibility to do anything is something I've really valued as an artist. Um, and I think I wish more people would do. 
But I, I've definitely observed that conservatory culture outside of music as well. But when I was trying to decide, because even though I chose the school that I did and they said, oh, yeah, you can totally double major. Um, it came to a point where I was having solos uh, for in our orchestra being the primary bassoon player. And um, I was also had a leading role in a Shakespeare piece. And um, there was a show during tech week. Uh, so I, there was this huge battle between the music department and the theater department of like, he has to come to this performance. No, it's our tech week. It's really important that he's here. And so it came down to like choosing. And um, what eventually made up my mind is that theater is inherently collaborative in my experience, where people are inherently working together. And I've been in orchestra since I was a little kid. And I've seen people cut strings for violinists they knew were better than them. I've seen people break reeds or hide reeds or mouthpieces for tubas they thought were better than them. And like, there, there's like this com really highly competitive nature to a lot of music that like, or at least classical music in my experience uh, is like really off-putting to me. And so that's why I eventually chose theaters because I just love this idea that we were all working towards the same goal. And obviously that doesn't always happen. That's an idealistic way to look at theater, but it's definitely what I appreciate most and what I strive for when I'm um, bringing together a group of people to make something. Semi, my understanding at this point with your education. So you went for what specifically in the realms of the arts? Yeah. Um, so uh, education kind of in general was strange to me because I started music lessons when I was three. And so like I've had music lessons for five different instruments, um, all with very different teachers. And so I was very blessed with um, having a lot of different teaching styles to deal with. And so um, and uh, during actual school, I was awful. Like it, I hated every second of it um, uh, because I had a learning disability that wasn't discovered until really, really late on. And so a lot of it was like me as a kid not knowing how to articulate what was going on while being told you need to read two chapters in one night. And like I can barely get through half a chapter, like five or six pages is all I can do in a night. Um, because also during the during high school, I was doing stuff from 7 a.m. was when my stuff started. And then I was working until 9.30 p.m. Uh, was when my orchestra let out after school. And then I wouldn't have a break. So it was band rehearsals, 7 to 8, school until 3. Then I had football from 3 to 6. And then I immediately went to my orchestra, which went on until 9, 9.30. And then I could go home and start doing the homework. And so like just in terms of being able to balance all of that um, was really, really difficult. And so I was an a B average student, uh, uh, but which was not good enough. And all of my teachers said I wasn't embracing my my. Um, my true potential because the issue was is I'd get A's on all the tests and I never do any homework and so uh, I kept getting in trouble because all the teachers were like if he just turned in his, his damn homework he'd get A's no problem because he clearly understands the material he's just not doing the homework um, but like I 
didn't have time. And also like I already understood the material, so I didn't understand why I had to do the homework. Um, but that's also how the system works. So, um, but, uh, there was a lot of it where I was just like, and so the arts and everything outside of it was, it was like this sanctuary for me where like during the day I would have to like, listen to people lecture about stuff I already understood and that they were really explaining for like the fourth time that I understood on the second time they explained. And then I would get to go into music uh, and then we get to play music. And I was really lucky to go to a high school with a um, nationally acclaimed band. And so like when I went to the high school that I went to, we would tour. We had a, um, we performed in Indianapolis uh, one or two years, um, because we, as a sitting concert band and I had a solo in that. And a huge part of that was the kind of push because I was a better bassoon player and not a whole lot of high schools had a bassoon player. So it made them really competitive. And so there was a lot of times that when I would get injured, like I broke my wrist when I was in my sophomore year and my band teacher got on to me about that because like, I compromised because we had a competition um, within a month. And so like for that competition, I had to take off my, my splint that my wrist was in so I could play the bassoon. And, it, and so like, there was all like this idea of like sacrificing for the greater whole, which I don't. <laughs> for the greater marching. Yeah. Yes. Come on. <laughs> you need to play that bassoon really well, or else we might only get a two in our competition <laughs> instead of straight ones. How dare you? And they'll comment about that bassoon. <laughs> that bassoon player's wrist looked funky. <laughs> it looked funky. Oh, well, it's so funny that like there is this. I mean, this is definitely uh, probably a universal experience because in public school, especially where they're like, oh, you're not living up to your potential or like doing all of these things that you're supposed to be doing in an academic setting because you have all of these incredible extracurricular activities that you're participating in that just like I, I remember we had a guidance counselor who like would continuously try to convince me to give up my orchestra. We had like a class during the day to give up my orchestra class for an extra math class. Well, I can't do math and I wasn't interested in math and it wasn't something that ever interested me, but it was like every year it was a battle. Because our school is very, where we went to school was very versed in math and science are the it. Yeah. Like, STEM this is it. like STEM let's and go. athletics. Like, <laughs> you have to be really good at this. This is like what we're known for. It's like, I don't, I don't really like it. It's not really my thing and it's fine, but you know, but it, it is very interesting because like you had said, like you did well on everything. You knew what you were doing, but yet you're still a B plus student because you didn't do your homework. It's like, that doesn't determine whether you're intelligent or not. Yeah. I was gonna say Which from your teacher, your teacher expertise, Liz. Yeah, that's that is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is a thing, and I get it. Um, but I don't know. I'm very like very odd with the homework thing because I, I get the need for it, especially when you're younger and not knowing it. But when you get older, to have that much weight to be like. You're losing potential because you didn't get all your homework and now you're a B student. I don't think that necessarily qualifies you as a B student. Because you're exploring your <laughs> individual yeah, interests. Like isn't it our job in high school to figure out what we want to do with our life and, and not just sit there and just 
do homework all day long. Like, well, to be fair, it started in like elementary school where I just like rough hair. <laughs> I, like I never did homework. It, like, and that was I know, always a battle that I had with my parents because it was like I because I just viewed it as busy work because I understood it. I I am unfortunately one of those people that understands things really quickly, but like to reach a higher level takes me a while. And so I have always been, I'm like in life inherently a BB plus student. Like I can walk into a room and usually understand something well enough to like be better than most, but not be outstanding in any regard. And so it took me a very, very long time um, until I was a junior in high school to like understand that although you can do that, you can also like be better. And that was my bassoon teacher who told me that is that I, I remember so strongly this, I, cause my sight reading for music is outstanding. And that's something I could always sight read. Um, and I could sight read to like performance level, um, at, when I was practicing music every single day. Um, and that was something that like, I wouldn't be hired professionally, but like I could sight read it and be at performance level uh and she i just remember this one lesson playing my solo for solo and ensemble to get into the state orchestra uh, which was a big deal because the state i was in was really competitive um especially for bassoons which is odd but uh but she just sat for a second and she said you know you can be better than this right and i was like that's an odd thing to say after I played. <laughs> I, I've just played like a five minute solo for you. That's an odd, like immediate comment to make. And she said, well, I know you don't practice and I know that you don't really care to right now. Um, but I just want you to understand that if you did, you could probably be first chair. And at this point I had just been like, even as a freshman in high school, I was last chair. Like I was second chair, second bassoon in the lower orchestra because there were two tiers. And um, she was like, you could actually try. <laughs> and so uh, that year I got um, first chair, first bassoon in the second orchestra. So that was second best who auditioned. And um, I just remember that being like the first time that like I, I like it finally clicked in my brain that like I could try because up until that point, it was never like everything that I did was like inherent to me. And so it was perfectly fine. Nobody expected anything of me. Everyone was expecting me to be this average person. And so it was totally really easy to just walk in, be what everyone expected me to be and then just leave. <laughs> Because at this point, too, I was also undiagnosed with my narcolepsy. So I was tired all the time. I was in uh, immense pain from a back injury from sports. And so, like, um, it was also really hard because I was the sports person forever. And I was being told that um, as soon as I started playing football, that that was going to be my life. Because, like, I got football. I walked onto the field and I was better than everyone and then i continued to practice and to be even better than anyone else and it was like the one thing that like it felt like that was my life and um my freshman year i had a rib break and detached from the sternum 
Uh, and it, and I, to tell you like where my mindset was, didn't tell anyone. And I played throughout that season with the broken rib that was not attached to my sternum. And I was a lineman, so I was being hit in the chest every single play of the oh game. <laughs> that like knocks the breath out of me even like thinking about it. Yeah, that's how badly I wanted to hold on to it. And so, and I would go home and I would cough up blood and I would hide it because like, this was my thing. This was the thing I was, I walked on and I just knew. Uh, and so getting that taken away from me was like this, like this hole that was left in me. And like music is something that I've always had, but like, again, it's like language. You, a lot of people take the language they're born with for granted. Unless they talk to people from a different community and you start to appreciate different aspects of it. And so it wasn't until after that that I really started to appreciate music more. And so and theater, I hadn't even tried theater until after I got injured in football. And so theater is a third life for me, really. Um, because the second thing I wanted to be after the football thing clearly didn't pan out was I wanted to be a zookeeper. And so I worked for, <laughs> I worked, I worked at a zoo for a summer, uh, and I worked with uh, the big cats and I was like, this is what I'm going to be. And then, um, a huge part of zookeeping is manual labor. And so as my back problem got worse, they were like, oh, you can't really work here unless you're like able to lift 50 pound objects regularly. <laughs> That I just I just sat through like this whole thing, this whole webinar on um like writing accessible job descriptions. And they're like, legally, you can't put in a job description. You have to be able to stand for 12 hours and lift 50 pounds. Yeah. And I was just like, ah, that makes me furious. Anyways, <laughs> to be fair for zookeeping, you do sure. have to. Sure. <laughs> like I can tell you from firsthand experience, we were moving feed bags and like clearing the animal enclosures and stuff. Um, so like you, you, you gotta, <laughs> I, I had this whole plan in high school, uh, where I was going to run away to Iceland and start a zoo there. <laughs> and I was going to have this giant zoo in Iceland and everyone would come and see it. And I had like this whole economic reasoning behind it that I had written out and everything. I, I did this instead of reading the books I was supposed to, by the way, I would research like, uh, second world countries and like the, how they, uh, really prioritize entertainment centers like a zoo can be because you also have these connections to other places as well because of the way the animal exchange works. And it was like this huge thing that it was really passionate about. And then I was like, well, <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll go play in a Shakespeare play now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a that's a big jump from the other. Well, it, it was it, it actually was a lot of transferable skills because like in theater, it's a lot of physicality. It's a lot of like manual labor uh, and it's a lot of like s precision work um, where like because uh, I was also doing a lot of carpentry at the time. And so like a lot of the attention that I had to pay during football to like this huge thing to be able to dissect a single issue works great for carpentry. Because like if you're working on this piece of furniture or whatever and something's not right about it, you have to be able to take a step back and see the whole of it and how the parts are operating within it to see what the issue is to adjust it. And so there was a lot of like transferable issues that it was uh, issues, transferable skills that I was <laughs> 
Freudian slip. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's okay. Oh, there's transferable issues, but that's just me. <laughs> My body's a transferable <laughs> issue that I'm taking every day. Well, yeah, it, it's fine. funny because I was, I, someone just told me about this online resource that is specifically designed to like help people find transferable skills across industries and how like post pandemic, there's a, there's a lot of gaps in like the art industry with people that had lost their jobs and then left the industry to find other things. And there are so many transferable skills out of the arts industry into other industries, but also other industries into the art industry. But there's such a weird culture like around art stuff where people are like, like yeah. <laughs> cat hiss, no, like, like, <laughs> like stay away. <laughs> and yeah. you're like, there's, but there's so Excuse many. Excuse me, you didn't go to a conservatory, so <laughs> right. you have to. <laughs> you clearly can't do accounting for our gallery because <laughs> you don't, you can't appreciate the fine brush strokes. Besides the fact, you seem to be very much a jack of all trades. I'm even, is there something you don't do? Like I feel like everything's just popping up. I'm like, I, I try very hard to learn as much as possible um just because like like i said in school like i was very happy being an average student um and so and part of being average is knowing a little bit about everything uh and so you never walk into a situation where you can't cover your ass um and so like but also i've experienced with art that because I've been a writer for so long uh, is that I, I view how I viewed music was I wanted to know how all the music, the instruments sounded and how they played. And so when I wrote music, I would know the instruments well enough to be like, okay, this isn't going to sound like this leap isn't going to work very well for a French horn. Um, because like, it, especially bassoonists, like we deal with people who don't know the instrument at all. And it's a very odd instrument in the way that the registers break. And it doesn't come in like natural, like in a clarinet it like there's one break. And then in the higher registers, there's a little bit of a break, but in the bassoon, there's like, there's two giant breaks and they come in really weird spots in the register of the instrument. And so I dealt with so many uh, composers that would just be like, we're going to do this to this. And it would feel like, how do you, <laughs> I don't have 20 fingers. I have 10. Um, and so, cause, and so like, that's how I viewed a lot of life is that um, I, I also am somebody who like, likes to fade in the background. So like as much as I can like do it for other people so they don't even notice my existence, I'm happy to do. And so they just don't look at me and just keep walking. Said like a true mm. theater major. Yeah, really. <laughs> really though. Yeah, very hello. <laughs> But I, I it, it, that's something that I, I actively try to do because like as also as a as a collaborator, because um, I focus on device theating is theating theater making, uh, which is uh, means you make a cohort of people and you all come together to write this show. Uh, and so a huge aspect as to why I love that is that it promotes everybody knowing a little bit about everything because everyone can say, Oh, that's interesting. Well, I have this idea for the sound that's uh, for this section that could be like, nah, 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 nah. and then somebody with a better sound brain can be like, let me grab that. That's interesting. And there's always something to add. And, um, and I, I think that one of the major things that I work at as a theater artist is making sure that everyone feels like they have a voice. Um, and that's a huge part of like what motivates me as a writer, especially is like, 
wanting to make sure that nobody feels left out um, and everyone feeling like they can say something. Um, and so that's why devising specifically so interesting to me is that like you can pull in people that because I founded a device theater company when I was an undergrad. And what motivated me to found this company was that there were freshmen um, that were black men that were being completely overlooked, even though they had really good talent, um, but they weren't traditional for the parts that they were uh, auditioning for. Part of that's typecasting and like uh, there was some validness to it and some invalidness to it. Um, but it like, I knew him really well and I knew that like, and part of it was like, because he was not being picked up, he was starting to drift away and I could tell like his work ethic was changing because he was, he was trying so hard and not getting anything for it. So things were changing. And so I inherit so like there was a couple people this was happening to. So I started this company and because like, that's not right. And I really want to give him an opportunity to not only prove it to other people but give himself a voice so he can tell himself that he can do this and so when i founded this company a lot of it was um making positions that i knew he could succeed in and so there were parts of rehearsals that i would be like oh, i just feel like there needs to be a comedic bit here that uh, compounds off of this what would be a good you know what jake could you just tell me like what you think would be great and he would like just go off and it's like this is perfect this is exactly what devising needs de devising to me is um and so it, it's just so also having this jack of all trades, I know enough about everything to know, okay, you have a brain that's really good at this, even though you haven't tried it, I would love for you to look into it because I think that your brain would really understand how this works. And I've done that a couple of times and I've, and selfishly, it's been very good for the projects I'm working on. Um, but also like, it's been really cool to put people in positions to succeed and watch them succeed and grow. So just for those listening, can you um, give us kind of like a short description of what devised theater making is? Sure. Um, it's <laughs> difficult because like it's a subculture of a subculture. Um, it would be like trying to describe what pop punk is. Is like there's things to it that like you can immediately gravitate to, but there's like more granular things and specific oddities that you're like, ah, um, so devised theater is... Um, when a group of people works together to collaboratively create a show. And so that means that in my experience that um, I have a cohort of members of like seven to nine professional theater makers. And these are technical people. These are writers. These are actors. They're everything. They're stage managers. And we work together to come up with what's really interesting to us. And then we slowly start to build the show through like improv exercises or other devised based exercises where it's just like what pulls at you with this idea. And, and that will inherently kind of make a foundation. And then in my experience, there's usually a writer or two there's a wire attacking me. There's, <laughs> there's a writer or two that takes the idea and makes it full. And so it's this like group storytelling more or less is like the main inherent aspect or virtue of it that I just find so inspirational because there are so many people that I've known that I've pulled, pulled into devising that are like, I'm not a storyteller. I'm not that creative. Just give me a script and I'll go. And like, they come up with these great ideas, but 
they would have never had an opportunity to say it. And that we would have never had the opportunity to hear these stories if like somebody didn't give them the opportunity just to be like, I don't know, this might be stupid, but can you try like this? And it's like the best idea ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like a very specific removal of the power structure around yeah. like art making that so traditionally exists. So that's really cool. Um, but the the thing is, is that it it is that at the beginning, but like you start to integrate these more traditional roles into it mm. as things go on, because like, like leaning on people's natural talents. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it comes in like halfway through the process where like, where we have a pretty good foundation of like what we understand. Now we're going to break into roles so we can make this a full production. But you're not, the idea is that you're not going out to fulfill all of these roles. Like within the company that created the show, you should already have a stage manager. You should already have a director. You should already have all the actors. Um, sometimes you cast for extra actors of like you're a five person company and you made a 20 person show. Obviously you're going to have to hire some actors, but the, the idea, is that most often this is a story that these people wrote and created um, like the Laramie Project is one of the most um, culturally relevant uh, pieces of devised literature where like this company went and did these uh, interviews and came back and the company that did the writing and the research and everything was the one who produced it Tectonic Theater Company is the name of the people who wrote the Laramie Project kind of talked a little bit about it, but I, I am a little curious as to how the writing portion came to be, uh, especially when you're, you were talking about being in school and not enjoying, you know, the assignments or, or homework. So how does that kind of play out to eventually becoming a writer? I, it was something I always wanted to do. I, I don't know, like before I knew how to write, I would like have these journals and I would just scribble in and be writing stories. I remember very strongly as a three-year-old, like having this journal and, and scribbling in it, not any letters. I didn't know how to write at all yet. I didn't, uh, and just writing out the story of a variation of Goldilocks where like, the the Goldilocks was a bear and the the three bears were people and like I remember very vividly writing this as a small child and being like oh <laughs> yeah and then I remember showing it to my mom like yeah read this isn't this real cool and she being like oh wow sure and so like um uh, but I always listened to audiobooks. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I had really bad insomnia. Uh, some of my earliest memories is not being able to fall asleep as a kid. And so, um, I would just listen to audiobooks nonstop. Um, and so just like this world of written literature is just something I've always had this huge attachment to. Um, and so, and that was always something that if and everything else was like not working out, I would always get the feedback of like, whenever you write, it's great because my voice has always been super strong when I'm writing because like, I, I'm obsessive about words. That's something that I've always loved. My mom is a polygot and she was an editor forever. And so she spoke four languages constantly when I was growing up. And so, um, whenever she was mad at my dad, she would speak in Spanish because my brother and I could speak Spanish. <laughs> 
whenever she was mad at my brother and my dad, she would speak in French because I could speak French. <laughs> and whenever she was mad at all three of us, she would speak in German because none of us knew a lick of German. <laughs> and That's so, amazing. yeah. So there was like this degree of separation. And like, um, but like just growing up, I was always encouraged to love words. And that was something that like just wordplay has always been something, puns, uh, turns of phrases, like also my dad's a lawyer. And so like being able to pick up on words and find loopholes was always something that I could, I could get away with something as a kid being bad if I could logic it out via words. And so like, if I did something that I knew I wasn't supposed to and I would get into trouble and I would go, ah, but you said this, this, and this, technically I did this. If I could explain it right enough with my words, they would be like, you're kind of right though and so like uh and so like this just like love of words has always been there um and so and just this want to be get to be able to give like people a voice has always been there as well and i believe in this weird thing that i'm sure that will make people think i'm a little strange but i'm somebody who likes to believe in like um uh, like multiple universe whatever and i view like people who are writing are actively seen into a different universe and so like mm. and so like these people are alive and living and so us writing down their stories is giving them life in this universe and so like it's this act of like giving to someone else um and so that's weird that's but, quite beautiful no, actually, actually it's, kind of, it's very poetic <laughs> I, I like i quite like it and so that's also like um I was talking to somebody today about like why I write and how, why I write so much. And it's just like, well, for a long time, it was like this unhealthy thing where like I'm narcoleptic and I wasn't diagnosed until a year ago, a year ago in a couple months. Um, and so, and the ironic thing with narcolepsy is like, you're also prone to insomnia because the way that your brain works, it's tired all the time. And so when you try to actively go to sleep, your brain's like, it's not any different. So you just sleep when you don't want to and you can't sleep when you want to is kind of how it goes. And so um, I would also I'm also severely OCD. And so I would get to spots where like I couldn't sleep for two days and then I'd be like, OK, I'm going to write an entire play in one night. Uh, and so I'm reteaching myself how to write in a healthy way and enjoy it. And part of that is like coming back to the pathos of that philosophy of like, this is an act of giving is writing. And so uh, also why I write about the disabled community in my own experience and trying to do that is feeding into the giving aspect of writing to me and like giving these people a chance to tell their stories, giving these people a chance to tell their voice. That's also why I spend a lot of time before anything gets performed, going to people who've lived these experiences and being like, Hey, is this right? does this feel connective to you? Because I think the main thing that I go for and the main thing that would like discourage me is somebody was like, you're writing about something that like, obviously you have no experience in. Mm -hmm. I think that would, that would be the thing that I would be immediately like, okay, I need to reevaluate why I'm writing this. Well, it's a good transition to your play that you wrote the waiting room, which I, so I recently, fairly recently have realized that I have some very serious long COVID lung issues. 
um, after having COVID like four times. <laughs> um, and it was funny because as you were sharing the script for your for your piece with me, I was going through a lot of exactly what is talked about in the piece. And I don't know, I like turned off my camera. We were on Zoom because I like started crying. Aww. I was like, I don't know Larry that well. I need to... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but like, it's so, um, it's such a powerful piece of theater, at least for me, I, it felt that way because people discount the importance of representation a lot. I don't know. It, it like really struck me in a different way than I expected, which I really appreciated. And Liz and I had the opportunity to come and see um, a performance of it at the ice house, which was fantastic. But I, it's, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about like the process for that or, sure. or all yeah, of it. <laughs> totally. Um, I, I primarily, I want to say that the reason why I think theater is so important, specifically life theater is that like the human connection of it um, is because with movies, there's a literal fourth wall. There's literally something separating you from what's happening, um, what's being presented to you. With music, there's this separation unless you're viewing it live. But even then, it's one sensory experience. Why I think theater is so powerful and why I've dedicated my professional life to it is because there are these people going through it on stage in front of you and like your brain can't make the separation that these are fake people. And so that's why I think like stories that work well are interpersonal dramas. That's why I personally don't like musicals as much, as much as they're popular. I think they can be used greatly. Um, but I, I have an issue with like spectacle being the leading force in theater because that's not what theater does. Well, what theater does well is the pathos and the ethos and like that interconnection between people. And that's why Tennessee Williams, uh, is really impactful. That's why, uh, Edward Albee is really, really impactful. Um, and that's, I write from a view of absurdism because I've had a very difficult life. And so it's easier for me to rationalize it behind this view of absurdism, which is a philosophy of like nothing in life really matters. Everything's absurd. And so that's where plays like the zoo story come from. That's where stories, uh, plays like, um, oh no, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> waiting for Godot. That's um, that's where uh, waiting I almost for interrupted Godot. you, and then I was no, like, "He's you gonna should get have. it." You should have. <laughs> I wouldn't have minded, uh, but that's where like waiting for Godot is. And I, I will say, I think waiting for Godot is a better piece of literature than it is a theater piece, um, because like how it's. I think a lot of what Beckett does is really interesting, um, and I, I like a lot of what Beckett does. But um, I think that he's more interesting as a literary figure because you can read it and you can read it quickly and you don't have to wait for a literal two hour performance of Godot to get through. And <laughs> it's like, okay, nothing really happened. And like, mm. that's the point. Yes. And mm. like, yes, you can enjoy the character. And if they're good <laughs> actors, it's really cool because mm -hmm. you get to see like how this waiting for purpose tears this relationship apart. Mm -hmm. So if the acting's really great, it's a good experience, yeah. <laughs> but like, because the way American theater runs is that like, that's only going to happen in collegiate theaters. And so you're going to probably get one really good actor and one actor that's okay. And that is something that like in a piece, like in theater, like Beckett, you need two powerhouse actors that can hold attention. But, um, 
getting back to uh, the waiting room, that was a piece that was um, kind of observing the absurdity of like the waiting room uh, in doctor's offices. And so how that piece was written was it was this couple that came into a waiting room where there's one person who is chronically ill with a back injury and there's one person who is her partner and is her primary caregiver. She's the one that like around the house brings her things. If she can't get up to move, she's dating, they're dating. Um, and so the first scene is a very genuine, um, naturalistic to use the theater term, uh, dialogue between these two people of like relationship troubles and like what's happening and how that can really weigh on them is because there is one person that needs a lot. And uh, that can really weigh heavily, not only on their mental, but on their partner's mental, because there can be this, yes, a partnership is supposed to be back and forth and trading, but like it's, it's hard. Every relationship is hard. Um, But, and so having this very genuine back and forth between the two of them of like uh, private jokes and having these really good genuine moments, but also like noticing like, can I go back with you? No, I don't want you to go back to the doctor's room with me. And like that being the hook for the audience to be like, Oh, what's up with that? Cause that seems like a really firm reaction to something that it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Um, but, and so, uh, and then the second scene, you go off into wonder land, you go off into like, not, you're not in reality anymore because like, um, I've been in doctor's offices a lot in my life and like the way you color those memories, especially like memories that are traumatic is like, you don't remember people as they are. You remember them as like uh, abstractions of like how you remember them talking to you. And so it's almost like you're living through this memory of her going through this doctor's office of this, this doctor being this clownishly bad doctor who's like popping pills during the, uh, the appointments. And he's like, he's completely confused on who's in the office at first. And so it's almost like a mem- her memory of this event happening. And it's like this. And Carrie's just like, I just need you to listen to me. And this doctor's like, um, he's like sitting on the ground and kicking his feet. And like, like he's clearly in his own world. He thinks he's the most important person. And then eventually she's like, I don't think you're taking proper care of me. And that's when he's like, okay, I'm a real person. Again, we have terminated your practice here because of the way that you, yeah, 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 yeah. And like, that was the moment that like, she remembers so vividly because like, that's the moment where she feels like completely lost. Um, and so that's why it's so specific with that language is like up until that point, he's a clown. Like he's obviously not using proper terms. He's he's saying weird things. There are moments of like, this is a real term. This is a real term, but largely it's like this weird incoherent babble. And then right at the end where he's like, we're terminating you, we're terminating your service. And it's all like the actual language they would use. Cause that's the moment that she's like dissociating and like the only thing that's left is like his voice. Well, it, you, it was so well integrated to it. Like that point of self-advocacy where they were like, nope, just kidding. Like back to reality. Well, like, I, I don't know about you, but like, 
a lot of my memories is like things that I wish I had said in the moment. And so like part of that too is playing with the idea of like, did she actually say that? Or is she just sitting there slack jawed the whole time while he's doing this? And he's like, and so because we can't figure out anything that's wrong with who you were terminating, you just so yada, yada, yada. And so like, um, it can be viewed in two different ways of like, did she actually say this or is this things that she desperately wish she had said in the moment? I also intentionally like, this is the most I've ever talked about myself and like my writing. I don't like to do that very often. Um, but like one of my favorite answers from any playwright ever, Edward Albee was a weird dude and I don't like a lot of what he said, but uh, my favorite answer from any creative ever came, comes from Edward Albee. Somebody asked him, what is zoo story about? And he said, it's about 50 minutes. <laughs> I like it. And so, and uh, I think that I think the reason where that comes from, from Albie is he thought he was the smartest person in the room. So I think it's more of that from him, but I believe that all art is interpretive and like, that's the important part because I believe that once it leaves my mouth, what you think of it is the reality of it. Cause like uh, for good and bad. And like, that means that each piece of art is like has millions of interpretations because what you're bringing to it is so different and is going to color how you experience something. And so it's also like not my, it is bad artistically, but also I think is like not the point of art to then hear somebody's interpretation and be like, well, as the writer. <laughs> and well, so, that's, that's specifically yeah. what this space is yeah, for. Yeah, I know, but that's I what still, this space is for, but I still feel bad about it. <laughs> we can talk more about it later. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, anyways, and then the final scene is between um, care uh, is between Rosa, who's the primary caregiver and this older woman who um, lost her husband um, and he went to this place forever before he passed away and her like reminiscing to Rosa about like these conversations they had in the waiting room and like how she wished she had valued that a little bit more at the time and her actively giving her the wisdom of yes this sucks yes I know you don't want to be here but you need to also understand what a great opportunity this is to connect. Please don't waste it like I did. And although that kind of went away in later versions of it, that was like the like impetus of that scene when I was first writing it was like this older woman being like, please value this because I didn't. And it went further away from that as I was writing because I was like, I don't really want to be that depressing. <laughs> uh, and so she was talking more upbeat about these memories and she, but like, and it, it really is like this bittersweet. He's gone now. And the weird thing is, is the thing that I remember most is our conversations here. And that was my sense of normalcy when I needed it was waiting here. And, um, and like, I, I think that there's a lot of people who just view their life as like a to-do list when like you can stop and appreciate things. And, um, I'm somebody who's lived a very difficult life in aspects. And like the thing that got me through the most difficult times is being able to like understand that, the moments I have in this waiting room with a person that I love and being able to talk with them is a blessing. Being here, having to be here is a curse and I really wish I didn't have to do it. But because I'm here, I get to have this conversation that I might not 
have had the chance to otherwise. And I think that that's something that goes beyond just the disability community um, is like there's a lot of people who view life as this task list. And I just wish that more people allowed themselves to enjoy the moment to moment. And so as I was writing, a lot of it was I was talking to Elise from the very beginning of, hey, I want to make this show as accessible as possible. Can you help me? prepare as I'm writing this to make this more accessible because the issue with accessibility in theater, probably other things, but I know exactly what you're going to say. And it is all things. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know, but I don't want to make the, and my personal experience with theater, they're like, a week before performance, maybe like the night before opening, they're like, oh shit, maybe we should have some accessibility stuff for this. Um, <laughs> hey, can you make this accessible? And it's like, well, do you mean like, do you want ASL interpreters? Do you want an audio describer? Make it accessible. Can you I make it look like we try? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's like, well, what communities are you trying to outreach here? Are you trying, is, do you have a connection to a specific community here? And so I need to prioritize this. This kind of accessible. Well, we, we want it accessible, and you're not. Um, so uh, a lot of um, my 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 work recently uh, has been around accessibility, um, just because like a lot of the hardships in my life has been around disability, and like not knowing what it is, not knowing why this stuff was happening to me. It just was, and I didn't know how to explain it, and I didn't know what it was, and so a lot of my work is like trying to make examples of people and what they're going through and why. And so like a kid like me who is 16, who is running away from everything as possible, wouldn't have to do that because they could understand what was going on with them so they can explain it to somebody else who could help them. Because a lot of my issues, especially when I was a teenager, was I was just in pain and I was just tired and I just couldn't do the work that was expected of me. And I had no clue why. And so when people were like, why aren't you doing this? I, I didn't I didn't have the language to explain to them what was happening. And so why accessibility is so important to me specifically is like if I was able to see the waiting room when I was a teenager I think that I would have had a much easier time. Um, and so it's just trying to make shows and trying to make art that can, can connect to people to make their time easier. Um, and so, uh, and that's also why I don't like making an overly depressing show is like, if I'm trying to help somebody, there's no point in making them slog through a half an hour of crying. Um, but I also want to represent life. So there will be moments of sadness. There will be moments of tears, but I always want to try to leave people off on a hopeful note. And so the, that's why the show ends with, um, there was audio description written into the play. And so there was a character that I played um, that was audio describing the whole play from the stage, um, as part of the, um, as part of the narrative itself, um, both in terms of like doing the actual audio description, which means I was describing the people on stage and their actions. And also there was this meta aspect of this character being somebody who was facilitating the storytelling. Um, and so not only was this person, 
um, actively telling you what these characters were doing, but he was almost like a narrator. Um, think like uh, in our town, there is a narrator role of like they're setting up the story that's about to be told. It was and very they, like drowsy chaperone. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it was such a nice surprise too coming to the show because there you hadn't included any of the narration or audio description in the script that you shared with me. So it was like really awesome to like sit down and then be like, oh, how is this? Oh, that's amazing. Oh, my God. It's all, it's all coming together. <laughs> I, I'm really glad it, it came together because like it was also like super simple. I don't like to say it like that, <laughs> but like because I had a plan for it and I wanted to do it. Also, like people in the accessibility space are so willing to help. And Elise is I will gush to Elise about anyone who will listen <laughs> because I think that she's one of the hardest working people I've ever met and one of the most like genuine people I've ever met. And so like any opportunity I have to like facilitate her growth or like to make connections for her, I, I go out of my way to do it because everyone I've met in the accessibility space is like that. We want to make things easier for people and that we, we have to fight every single day for for the basic needs of other people. And we wouldn't do that if we didn't care so deeply about it. And, but it, it really was like doing the research and doing the readings and talking to Elise and talking to an actual audio describer and then taking a course in audio describing, like just being able to apply it to the writing was like, there was already a function of a narrator character. It was it was not a huge leap for the audience to understand, okay, he's describing the actions of the characters on stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, well, I'd like to throw out there for those listening that maybe have listened to the show in the past, like we tend to have a lot of visual artists on this podcast. And like when they come in, we will write an audio description of one of their works, one, because it's an auditory program, but two, it increases accessibility. Um, so when we're talking about audio description in a theater space um, and Larry nods to saying it's simple, I will say like in comparison to audio describing visual art, it does take a lot more forethought. So like yeah. there, there is a lot of credit to be given to you as the playwright and as the person that put this together that like a lot of times the way audio description is structured in performing arts settings is you will get to the rehearsal stage and then an audio describer will be hired to attend maybe one or two rehearsals, basically memorize the entire play and then come to a couple performances that the theater deems as audio described performances. And also write their own version of the script right. to read. And right. So they also understand what's happening on stage to interject here so it wouldn't be interruptive to the dialogue that's happening right. on stage exactly. as well. Exactly. So it's, it is a very intensive process yes. that like with most accessibility related things is had it been baked in from the initial birth of the project or right. whatever could potentially be very simple, <laughs> but that's just that's, not how it traditionally yes. works. So I think like I was excited to bring Liz to the performance because I was like, you have to see like, this is going to be <laughs> revolutionary in the world of theater. And not to say that other, there aren't other yeah. playwrights that do this. I'm sure there are somewhere, but oh, yeah. it was just like, I'm being loosely generous, but um, from, nice. my, from my research, <laughs> not really. No. Same. Um, but, but I just, I don't know. Like, it's just such a nod to like, 
like I see this on TikTok all the time. Like in like people talking about like dating. They're like, if he, if he, if he, uh, <laughs> if he, he wanted to, he would. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's exactly like yeah how I feel about accessibility work. It's like if the people You're doing right. it wanted to, they would You're do right. it. Yeah, but they just don't because it's the extra step. It's yeah this much money. It's that. It's that. And like yeah. Uh, this is turning into a, a rant that I could <clears throat> I mean, go on for an hour, but yeah, I, I think the, the the odd part about it is it, it, it's we label it as accessibility, but it's not accessible. Yeah, it's unattainable, and and majority of really any arts, it's very unattainable because there's either a people that don't care enough to go and do it, or learn about it to begin with. B they don't know what needs to be researched to begin with because they're not taught it based off of anything else prior. Or even in, I mean, it stems from, and I can't say this because I'm an elementary school teacher. It stems from your very beginning, though. Like, you don't really touch or touch that with a 10-foot pole because, God forbid, you say anything about it. Uh, but then it's not attainable because it's expensive. But really, isn't the goal is to make it so that it is all accessible yeah. eventually. But it is very irritating how many people don't do it yeah and the knowledge barrier is high for a lot of this information but and, and like i won't say like oh it's so easy you can just make everything accessible but like if if you <laughs> if it was planned for it would be that's what i was trying to say earlier when i said it was simple it's like because that was like right when I started writing the script, I came to you with like a 0.5 draft of the script. And like, I was already trying to make this accessible. What aspects of the script isn't and how can I improve that? And like playwrights already meet with dramaturgs regularly while they're writing. It would not be a regular. There should really a dramaturg dramaturg should be trained in accessibility as well. I think that that would be beneficial uh, I think that would be an easy like subplant because a lot of dramaturgs also focus on like front of house um, and like display of information in front of house and how to uh, treat the script. I, th I think I need to shift my career path. They go. They go. <laughs> I think I you would enjoy being a dramaturg. I had a theater class in college and I didn't know what a dramaturg was until I had taken that course. And like, I was like, whoa, that sounds cool. But yeah. now... Hmm. One of the go. smartest people I've ever met is a woman by the name of Rebecca Weaver. Um, and she's a dramaturg and she like um, a, a good dramaturg like Rebecca can revolutionize how a play is done. Hmm. I was going to say, maybe give us like a little definition. For uh, yes. oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a dramaturg is somebody who does the research um, for a play. So a dramaturg often is working with directors or playwrights about like if a if a writer is like nowadays people would smoke, but like in the 1600s, like if there was a group of men outside, what would they be doing other than smoking? A dramaturg would be able to be like, okay, based off of my information, we have this, this, and this. Effectively, their job is to do uh, research into things that will heighten the performance of a production or of a script, of just being able to give the credibility of like sometimes they do, Rebecca does a lot of gender and sexual studies and so she will work often with playwrights or directors who are trying to like adjust Shakespeare into a more asexual or transsexual um, respect and so she'll be doing the research and doing community gathering to be like okay what parts of this are seem um, unattainable seem unrealistic uh, and they do a lot more than that but really they do the 
research to make plays really seem solid. They give a foundation for a play to be built on top of. Rebecca, wherever you are, I miss you. <laughs> Rebecca, I'd You're love to Iowa. meet you. <laughs> you. You would love you would love Rebecca. You really would. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to to say that like there's a lot of people like yourselves that are pushing it and and putting it out there for other people. But I also feel like there are a lot of people that haven't had the experience to be able to really understand what it is to begin with because both of you are coming in and myself included just from a different perspective we're coming in with an eye and a perspective of i've been around it i can see like Mm -hmm. and you have a connection with people and you build that connection with other people but it is difficult for someone on the outside looking in like if you imagine you're someone else that's never come like which is possible haven't come in contact with somebody that has ever really needed that accommodation or needed that accessibility, they're not consciously thinking of it because they haven't experienced it themselves, which is in your in your mind when you've been around that so often in your life, it's like second nature in our brains and like consciously, subconsciously, we don't even really have to think about it. It's just like, oh, why would you not do that? Like that doesn't make any sense or like that's so insensitive. Why would you not provide that? But if you think about it in the grand scheme of it all, there are a lot of people that have never even experienced any notion of like what any of us have experienced in life. And I think it becomes very two-sided, I think I want to say. I, I don't know if that's the right word for it or not, but there's a lot of pushback, I think, from both sides because we don't really have that middle ground or that medium where people can be like, I don't know a lot about it. I want to learn more. Where I think like some people either they just don't even consider it. And then the people that on the other side are like, how dare they be so insensitive? It's like, I think that there needs to be a middle ground to be met. But it's just that balance point. Like, how do we get there? You know what I mean? Like, it is tough. And it is and can be very frustrating when you're on the other side of it. It's like, this is like my career. Like, this is my life. This is what I do all day. How could someone not know about it? But then at the same time, am I really being willing enough to teach them in a manner that is not i don't want to say degrading that's not the right word but sure. like you know what i mean <clears throat> yeah yeah it's like i don't want to be condescending but yeah. i also don't want them to under like i don't want them to think it's fine yeah either yeah 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 it's, you don't want to downplay the, yeah i don't yeah, want to yeah, downplay yeah, yeah, yeah. but i also want them to be like come and join me like yeah <laughs> join my circle <laughs> i it's interesting that you say that because i often run into this issue and i it translates between all kinds of like diversity work where especially in like work surrounding racial equity, you talk about how like it's not the responsibility of the marginalized community to educate other people. But like, it's so interesting with disability because what's the statistic that like one in four people have some kind of disability Mm -hmm. and some people don't even realize. And like most people will face either temporary or permanent disability in their life. Most people will come in contact with someone or have a partner or a loved one or a parent that will have a disability in their life. And it, it just furthers your point of like the anger that there is no exposure to it in early education that like even through at least in my experience in the public school system and it, it sounds like like i i don't think i met someone who used a wheelchair until i was in high school like it's a it's something you don't talk about and people that require 
additional assistants in school growing up are othered so quickly yes. and yeah. put you're literally out of, put yeah. in a different classroom yeah, or so school like, very taboo. The, the child the students that are not in need of those services are already being put in like this higher position where oh well now you don't even have to interact with the students that have disabilities because that would be a hindrance on your education and like it's like outcasting people that oh of really course. never should have been to begin with and then to look at it in the sense of we don't want to be judgmental but we have been taught to be that judgmental person from the beginning but also then kind of goes back to the idea of i think sometimes people are afraid to ask for help because if you are if you if yeah like if you want or need the help we have gone to like this weird like cultural thing where it's like if you ask for help am I going to be like othered almost but I think that we're in the the society now that I'm hoping and it's what we have seen it a little more often that we're trying to integrate it more naturally but it's again it's something that you know it's not going to happen overnight but it's definitely something that I've seen a lot of especially in education like we were talking earlier like so young you're afraid to ask for help but because people have been so afraid to ask for help i think that it's become a normalized thing to just not even think about it 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 definitely has there's a reason why accessibility is lumped in into dei uh uh, that is diversity uh equity inclusion um because whenever i talk to my african-american friends and i'm lamenting about like oh why is this difficult and yada 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 they're like oh this sounds familiar uh and it's like it's very similar because it is a cultural thing uh and it is like uh it's it's very different like uh there is a reason uh, like muslims need prayer rugs and this this and this time to do uh, observe these religious practices and um disabled people need breaks at this and this and this time to take care of it is like culturally they're very relevant like um uh like parallels that's the word thank you yes yeah uh, thank you body for just drawing <laughs> two lines in the air With your hands. I was like, thank you yourself yes, that was wonderful. Was, my body was like parallel lines yeah, yeah. <laughs> my brain is like i have no clue what you're trying to tell me um but uh um but there is a a a culture culture of hiding the disability because i most people are five seconds away from being disabled and so part of it is like this 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 zeitgeist of like fear around it and just and there's like this uh internal like um juxtaposition between like this could happen to me and i'm invincible nothing will ever harm me and so like when you're talking to a lot of in my experience when i'm talking to a lot of people about disability especially people who don't want to be uh equitable is like this you can see the mental gymnastics of like oh that makes sense but i don't like it because that means that we and like this like you can see the process happening in their brain of like the submission and the submersion of this idea and hiding it from themselves and it's like if you just like accept it the words that I'm saying to you right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> wrong thoughts. Like, 
I, I will say that I'm very new to accessibility work. I started, um, this was something that was introduced to me uh, when I started grad school. It was something that I didn't even think about until there was a man called Todd London who came in to do a guest lecture. And uh, he was talking to me about the show that I wanted to write, which was about this disabled father and his relationship to his kids. Um, and like through this lens of disability. And I was just talking about it as like this interpersonal play. And um, I was also talking talking about the the health struggles that I was I was having an MRI that week and so I was going to miss a lesson and yada 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 and he was like why aren't you researching disability and accessibility and I was like uh, oh <laughs> and I will say every like I said earlier everyone that I've talked to in the accessibility community really really wants to do this work and really really wants other people to be as empathetic and as excited as they are. And so everyone that I've ever talked to in this community has been very, very welcoming. And there's these, there's a bunch of free resources online. Um, the, uh, uh, National Endowment of the Arts has a couple of handbooks for um, for accessibility design that are free on their website. There's this. There was a theater that was a accessible theater program. Like they, that was their prime thing. And although they're defunct now, they have their uh, handbook of how they de designed all of their shows to be accessible on their website that you can still access now and so there's a lot of free resources yeah. online yeah i will say the accessibility community is that is one thing that um there is so much content and so many resources and so many amazing things that are out there in the world that um you can find and watch and research and like this is not something i was trained in this is something that i have spent the last seven years of my life researching so it's something that I'm very passionate about due to personal experience, but also just because the community is so incredible, like in welcoming and like open in knowledge sharing. And I think one of the most, and I'm curious what your uh, like positive spin on, the, on, um, on this will be, but like one of the things that I think if I had to boil down to like, this is something that you could do right now is like, this concept of flexibility that is like so missing from our society. And I think post COVID it started to kind of like ease back in a little bit with like people working remotely and changes to workplace and changes to professionalism and professional dress. And like, that's one of the things I into coming into terms with my own disability that like I never considered myself disabled for all of the years that I did this work. And now the more that I'm doing it, I'm like, oh, there's a lot going on here that like I identify with. I will be so forever grateful to the people I work for because they showed me that like I deserved this flexibility. Like as an employee, I was doing my job. I was doing it well. And I had this other thing going on that like I deserved the flexibility of like taking care of myself in addition to doing my job and doing all of the things that I love. So like as an employer, as a person doing arts accessibility work, as an arts administrator, as a theater person, a visual artist, like just open yourself up to like 
flexibility in your work. Like don't hold so true to um, all of the things that you think are required of you. Like a really good example of this is we had a visitor in the museum last week who um, has macular degeneration. um, So she's legally blind and was using um, a magnifier lens and standing really close to a painting. And I saw one of my student workers about to go, tap her on the shoulder and say like, excuse me, can you please back up from the painting? And I caught them just in time. And then I felt bad for not training them to not do this. But, um, I said like, Hey, I just want you to take, like, let's take a minute and notice like why she's doing that. And the student's like, Oh, I didn't even realize she had a magnifier. And I was like, yeah. So I was like in the future, maybe, um, just take a second to think like why someone might be doing what they're doing. Um, similar to like, Uh, we have a lot of children with like sensory needs that'll come into the museum. And I always just encourage like other staff that are working. They're like, take a second to just think why that person might be doing what they're doing. Um, So yeah, this concept of like flexibility, I don't know if that's something you ever run into in like the classroom or as a teacher, like all the, (laughs) you never run into flexibility (laughs) issues. Never, Like all the time. I mean, even just the simplicity and I say simplicity lightly of, I mean, I work with six and seven year olds all day. Yeah. They don't understand the concept of tonality and just <laughs> like, be like, that was mine. Why did you do that? I'm like, okay, let's just stop for a second. First of all, you can use your words to describe how I'm feeling and why that upset you. Second of all, let's not whine about it. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's use a nice tone. It's just even the simplicity of tonality and just expressing yourself is as very it, people aren't taught how to do that anymore. And that is so simple. But yet we've gone away from it a little bit more, um, but it helps them out quite a bit. I, I also feel like a big part of being able to teach children and just anybody who hasn't had the ability to do it before or the opportunity, they have the ability, but they don't have the opportunity is being genuine about it. Mm. Like the, the genu- genuineness that you can have for just simply asking questions mm. is, has a huge impact, not only on for yourself to learn, but for the person that you're asking, like that can genuinely make someone's day. And even with that, then they could understand, Oh, like people care. Yeah. Like let me share. I'm I'm willing to share more now. And and that is something as simple I think that anybody can really do any day. Like if you simply ask somebody like, "Hey, how can I help you?" or like, "What do you need from me?" to be able to feel like you can successfully and like feel calm and just like you're able to participate in this just as simply as anyone else yeah. and just not treating them differently. You know, like in hindsight, yes, am I treating them differently in a way? Sure. But I'm not treating them differently as a person. They're still a person. They're still somebody that I should be genuinely coming up to and asking, hey, what can I do to help you? Like the same way I would ask anyone else is is no different. And teaching the kids just how to do that has been really good. Like we are right next to a classroom that is emotional support classroom. Um, And it is really interesting because like, teaching them just to be like, you don't have to stare at them. Like just walk past them like you would walk past anyone else. You can say hi, you can talk to them, you can wave and do whatever. But teaching them so young is such a big deal because then they will become that person that's flexible or it will become the person that's okay with the flexibility in the future is which is what we want, which is what we want. So that genuineness is goes a long way, which I think is a really big deal. 
especially with kids. I mean, they're going to just absorb it like a sponge and they are going to go out in the world and show others and adults or even their parents like how to be that way. Mm -hmm. And it's it's huge because I do. I have a lot of kids that don't. One doesn't speak English at all. And just even just teaching them patience. Like being like, oh, patience isn't a big thing too, I think, with that as well. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are go, 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 rush, rush, rush. Like I got to get my like to-do list, talking about to-do list and things like that. I got to get my to-do list done. It's like, yes, but you can also take a minute to be patient and observe. Like you're talking about, like just observe. Because simply observing and then being genuine to be like, hey, what can we do? Like I think goes a long way. I think it's something as simple as that really is effective, especially in the long run. And if more people do it, I think we can build a bigger community that's even more welcoming, more solid to the point of being able to reach out to more people in the community than what we can do right now. And I think that that can make a huge difference in the long run, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's creating this like comfortability around yeah. talking about disability and accessibility. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've incorporated it. This now it's just like a yeah, our and I ch- our little nudge, right? And for those that are listening, like, please, if this is something you're interested in, like, I, I love talking about. I it. also yeah. love like, talking just about. Just DM this. me on Instagram. Yeah. For real though, like let's all like um, we'll meet for coffee. Yeah. Oh my god, that's the dream is to just get accessibility coffee dates out of this. Can we do accessibility this. coffee? That's, that's like, what you and I do yeah. all the time. I was gonna say like everyone I know that does this work in the community. Like I just met. I'm gonna shout out to uh, Mar- Archie Makowski, who is the new manager of accessibility at the Allentown Art Museum. Hi. Um, we have. Like that we just did like our second like coffee date meetup uh, and just like chatted about accessibility. And like that's something as someone doing this work that like I need so much. But if you are not doing this work and you want to be like, I'm not going to position myself as an expert, but like I'm happy to talk about it and point you in the right direction. Um, But in addition to that, I think along with this episode, we will be sharing a lot of additional um, accessibility resources and disability community resources um, and just maybe even some organizations that are doing like some really incredible social justice and advocacy work as related to disability um, and racial equity. And you know what? All of it. We're going to do better. (laughs) This is here and now we're going to do better sharing out all these amazing resources that are in our community because I think it's important. But in the meantime, if you just want to chat, we're here. And I will say that I, I have seen, even in the last year, a major shift of interest into accessibility. Because um, I'm working right now as the um, accessibility coordinator for the Atlanta Fringe Festival. And there's a huge shift in like culture in theater about accessibility and them realizing it, whether how much of it is just political um, talk and they don't actually care. That's some of it too. But there are corporations where like the Atlanta Fringe incorporated a entirely accessible performance for children with sensory issues as part of their festival. And that was something that was, there was this performance where half of it was entirely accessible and half of it was um, more traditional. And there was a increase of uh, um, people coming to the accessible first hour portion of it. And like there is a fiscal and business sense to do this as well um, because it's also like community outreach. And so like the, the, when I'm talking to businesses, the, the thing that it, like always gets my goat to use an odd expression. Um, 
<laughs> Give it back. It's my goat. Um, uh, see, this is what I'm talking about when I say I'm obsessive about words is I use strange turns of phrase because I find them amusing. Um, also, because my brain doesn't work half the time and gets my goat was the only thing that was... <laughs> accessible to my brain. Um, but uh, when I talk to businesses, it's it's a huge aspect of it is like the access, the disabled community or the a community that is chronically ill is so passionate about the people that are doing this work and are so willing to bend over backwards to give feedback and to give support and to lend aid because like any group, they are they are wanting to speak. They are wanting to go and enjoy these things. And if they see even like a, a little bit of inclusion, they are so, I don't want to say childish because that's a little bit, you know, <laughs> emphasizing the community. But there's like this childish glee that comes when you see like, oh, they care. And like this just love and like everyone that I've worked with in this community is just so grateful to have the opportunity. And it's so rewarding to be able to do this and be like, even for the selfish, like, I know that I really needed this as a kid. And like the little me is really thankful I'm doing this now is like also seeing the impact that it has as a community in the community. Cause as a writer, I struggled for a long time of just writing stuff and people would come up to me and go, Oh, your writing was just so great. I love the way that you use this. And like, yes, that's like a fun little ego boost or whatever, because I'm, I used a smart thing. Um, but like it, it's so much, more impactful to me to have people come up to me after the shows and be like I've lived this thank you for making this performance because I felt like I couldn't tell anyone about it and seeing the show made me feel like I wasn't as alone and that was even the smaller crowds that came to the waiting room I got that five or six times and it just like didn't break my heart but like it, it really really was like that's what this is all about. That's what this, what this, what I've been looking for is like this just ability to finally help people not feel as alone. And like furiously awesome. nodding. Yes. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> we are so like immersed in like our specific things that we're doing right now. But like, what about all the other things we don't know about? Like yeah. that people are doing even just like this coffee shop is accessible or like this place is doing this. This place has an interpreter. This place had audio visual. Like, I think that we are, there's so many other people that we could like yeah, we shout out to. We should be celebrating to, like, those people. Celebrate yeah. them. Yeah. And then celebrate the people that are looking for it and that are like, oh my gosh, you should go here. Like they have this cool thing here and they did this. They were, they were appreciate like just like mm, all of it. Yeah. And I think that if we have other people just message us and be like, okay, dude, you want a spotlight for, you know, at disabilities this week? Like, who do you feel really embraced it or embraces it throughout their like daily? And like, if you've, you know, if you hear somebody like definitely like let us know, or like if you hear somebody or even just somebody that's listening to like reach out to us, we can spotlight them on the podcast, like either shout out to them a day or like put them on our social media. And I think it really is I mean, that even simply. That's, yeah, that's a huge true. part that I yeah. talk about with accessibility is that um, a, 
it, like you also have to do the community building aspect of it. You have to do the outreach because there is because not only will it give you a better turnout and a good interaction with the community, but also if you're talking to these people, you'll have a better understanding of what their needs are. And so you will have a better facilitation of being like, okay, I'm in a direct uh, like um, where I went to high school had a uh, the largest um, the largest blind college in the nation. And so like whenever there would be shows there, like thinking about it now, I would obviously be in connection with the College for the Blind and I would make a lot of uh, uh, bend over backwards to make sure that I have good audio describers and like just knowing the community and making that outreach a makes your job a hell of a lot easier but b also those people are so excited to tell you <laughs> about like and they're so willing to work with you and like it is so easy if you just have that in mind to be like hey okay I'm so glad that I got to talk to you now I know that I don't need to worry about ASL interpreters because there's no people who are deaf in your community that you're bringing. Like, obviously you'll want an ASL interpreter anyways, but if you're working with the specific community, you'll have a better understanding of like, okay, this is something I really need to focus on. And then they'll come and then they'll be excited. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many things to say about this, but I'm going to try to boil it down (laughs) into like two points. The first is that, um, what you touched upon was like having readily available accessibility, like things in place like ASL or audio description or whatever. Disability is a, it is a very intimate medical thing. Like the embarrassment, I don't want to say embarrassment, but I feel embarrassment a lot of the time. Like when I have to ask for like a chair or something, cause I need to sit down the embarrassment or like the, uncomfortability that comes along with (laughs) that comes along with like having to ask for something is dehumanizing at least i am too embarrassed (laughs) to walk into my doctor's office using my cane i understand that and i i had to ask permission from my spinal doctor to use my cane when i go visit him like I uh, like there the, like because it's it's like showing your underwear to someone like even if it's yeah. not on your body it's like yeah. people get it's very please. it's a very <laughs> yeah. vulnerable yeah. experience like and I've never yeah. in my life used my inhaler in public like never in my life I, I, I this would, is the no, first time never, seeing you your <laughs> inhaler so and like it's <laughs> one of my first times too you know how long I've known her for it's like 15 years <laughs> I knew like, she I had it a, but I have uh <laughs> um the first time I brought it to work was when I was going through like a really bad bout of chest pain, like a couple, like a month or two ago, um, where I was taking my nebulizer to work and like using it in the office. And the whole time I was just like, Oh my God. Like, <laughs> my watch is telling me to relax by the way. So, <laughs> um, but the last, the last thing I will, I will say in this vein of accessibility other than please reach out if you want to chat um it's just that there is this weird field of dreams like lens around accessibility work we're like oh we're gonna have asl and then people will show up it is never gonna work that way so like finding people that can support you and understanding what outreach and marketing avenues people with disabilities actually utilize is going to be bar none like one of the most important things you can do in terms of engagement. So Larry makes a really good point and Liz makes a really good point about like just doing this work from the ground up. But if you're an organization 
or even an individual artist who's just trying to get into this sphere, like just talk to people with disabilities. <laughs> like yeah. that's it. That's all. You, like just yeah. talk to them. Talk yeah. to us. Yeah. Talk to us. Uh, We're here. Yeah. I mean, the big, the biggest part is building relationships with people. Yeah. You can't can make connections with anything related to someone without building that relationship first. And that's like the key to all of it. And I, I will shout out really quickly. Um, Lavaca does a really good job recently with Jackie Schwartz. Uh, she did a disability pride event last year. That was really fun. I got to perform some of my music there. Um, uh, and then uh, she also partnered with me to help promote the waiting room. And so they are somebody who do uh they did at least, uh, I don't know if they still are, we're doing monthly spotlights on disabled artists in the community. And um, I was the first person they spotlighted actually. So um, as part of the waiting room, and I, I will say that uh, Jackie's is trying her best and she's doing a really good job of like, she brought in somebody to teach a audio description class. She's doing a really good job at community building and there, I know that she's been struggling in certain aspects of it in terms of just like reticence from the community to like include some of the accessibility options, but she's done a really, really good job from what I've seen of like pushing past a lot of those barriers. And then Lavaca is the Lehigh Valley Arts and Cultural Alliance based in Allendale. So Larry, I did, before we finish up, I did want to touch on, um, the show that you're currently story gathering and researching for as part of your thesis yeah. thesis. Yeah. So, um, I'm somebody who I really love mythology. Uh, mythology is something that I spend a lot of my private time, like reading on just because like I am fascinated by stories and I'm fascinated by like these religion and how like in impactful these stories are and how they can shape somebody's life. And so the story that I'm working on now is kind of a, a, a com combination of my interest in myth and legend and accessibility. And it's a combination of the story of Sisyphus, um, who was the uh, Greek king who tried to delay death. He kidnapped Thanatos, the god of death, and he there was this plague where it was just people weren't dying. And eventually Hades himself came from the underworld, which was a big deal. Hades did not leave the underworld. That was something he was not even allowed to do technically, to come to uh, take Sisyphus, this king, down to Hades. Um, and his punishment for this defiance of death was he was to push a boulder up a hill to the precipice. And once he did, he would be done. But it is a hill that never ends. So the point of it, uh, the punishment, is that there's no point of escaping death. It comes for all. And so there's this almost Sisyphusian um, struggle in a lot of people who are disabled or chronically ill of this constant restart of our treatment, especially with people like me who have disabilities that cannot be cured. I have something called Crohn's disease where there will be ulcers ulcers that are formed in my colon every once in a while and they cannot solve the disease they can't stop that from happening but they can treat me for when that when those form mm. and so it is this sisyphusian of just kind of like waiting until there's something that can be treated and mm. then they can start treatment for it until it 
abides and then we're waiting again until the next thing comes and it's like this whack-a-mole game almost of symptoms and so the story is i'm i up until this point with the waiting room and my uh, play before that called Dissonance was very, very personalized to my experience with disability and my kind of experience and people directly connected to me. The waiting room, the main character of which, Carrie, is pretty much a one-to-one representation of me and Rosa was a one-to-one representation of my partner. And there's a lot of our story and how we dealt with those issues baked into that. Um, and so with this, um, I, I really wanted to step away from my experience to talk to other people um, who also have had uh, uncurable illnesses or diseases to see how they kind of deal with this, this Sisyphusian task of dealing with these, um, these diseases who cannot be cured, but that can be treated along the way. So right now I'm working on talking to people, hearing their experiences, how they deal with starting over, how they cope with it, how they deal with it, how it impacts their lives and how also they can keep the hope while doing this over and over, not to give up what they do to help build and not just let the boulder roll all the way back down to the bottom of the hill. Excellent. Very deep mythology embedded within the, within the project, but I really love that. And I, I think the, like metaphor is very strong. So I'm excited to see that all come together. Um, do you have dates for when that will be? The dates are April 4th and 5th at the Ice House tonight. April 4th and 5th, 2024. 2024, yes. Thank very you. Good. Awesome. And Larry, if people want to find you online or learn more about your work, where can they reach out to you? Um, they can reach out to me at Larry Mason Theater on Instagram. Um, I post some of my music on there too. My music has next to nothing to do with any of my accessibility work, but I also, <laughs> uh, there's pictures of like for the waiting room, there's fun pictures of us in rehearsal and there's up dates about um, what I'm doing there, but I'm not super active. I'm sorry. I'm a physical person, but, uh, but I'm, I'm more than happy to point you towards people who are cool in the community or resources that I have found, or even give you some um, bits and pieces of advice that I found trying to make it more accessible theater. Very good. And I will I will say that's Larry Mason Theater. Theater spelled the fancy way. Oh, I'm so sorry. at L-A-R-R-Y-M-A-S-O-N-T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. Don't forget to like the podcast, leave us a review, and follow us on both social media and streaming services at Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast.